doctors are really trying to distinguish themselves and the work that they do in the Canadian context from midwives, who often have a lot more hands-on experience with childbirth. My name is Theo Finnegan and welcome to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. I'm with Dr. Whitney Wood, who on Friday, October 23rd, will give a talk entitled Understanding Women's Pain in Canadian Medical History. This presentation will be streamlined online via Zoom and it's part of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at VIU's colloquium series. Dr. Wood is Canada Research Chair in the Historical Dimensions of Women's Health at VIU, as well as a professor in the Faculty of Arts and Humanities. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here virtually. Here. We're here virtually today. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Good. Not too bad. Thank you. Um, pain. What draws you to that subject matter, which at least if you're thinking you know, in a cliched way, people would want to avoid, right? So, so why, why does pain draw you in as a, as a research area? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I first came across this area of study in my undergrad, uh, which I did at Lakehead University. I was taking a, a second year history of medicine course. And this was a course that was at 830 in the morning in the winter term. So it had to be pretty riveting content to kind of grab your attention at this early hour. So it was here that I first learned about something called twilight sleep, which was a form of anesthesia that had a very brief period of popularity in the first decades of the 20th century. So twilight sleep was something that was administered to women who were giving birth. It was a mix of anesthetic drugs and amnesia drugs that, so women would receive some pain relief but the amnesic drugs would mean that they would have no memory of the pain that they did experience during delivery. So, but this mixture of drugs was something that made women uh, extremely excitable and sensitive to visual and auditory stimulation. So any sights or sounds in the delivery room would lead some women to jump out of bed. Many injured themselves, knocking their faces off windowsills and radiators. So the doctors who were administering twilight sleep anesthesia required women to wear essentially straight jackets and blindfolds to restrict stimulation and control their movements during birth. So my question was, th this was so popular in the 1900s and 1910s, why would women want this? How did this become kind of the ideal birth experience? So my question was, why? And it had to do with attitudes towards pain and the pain of giving birth in that period for a particular group of women. So this was the, the question and the horrific vignette from history that kind of grabbed my attention and led to my research in this, in this area. I like that idea of a vignette kind of grabbing you, right? Like it's not, mm -hmm. it sounds very kind of, not dramatic, but sort of compelling as a subject matter, right? That, that you felt compelled from, from, from hearing about this. It sort of goes into my second question, which is kind of related to that. So I was recently reading an article uh, just in The Guardian about, Hilary Mantel, the historical novelist. She writes sort of Tudor England historical fiction. And I think she won the Booker Prize a couple of times. I was reading a review of a recent book, collecting her essays together. And she, she has a, a quote in that that says, um, in relation to Virginia Woolf, another famous author, obviously, who said that we, we basically don't have language for pain. Mm -hmm. Wolf said that, and Hilary Mantel says, I think her quote is something like, that's hosh posh, or, you know, some, she, she rejects that idea. She's like, yeah, the, the, her, her line is, 
the, the torture room is where we speak. So I, the larger question here, I suppose, is like, where's, where are the limits of language when it comes to pain? Yeah. Maybe a, a really big question, but I, I wonder what your take on that is. Yeah, no, it immediately brings to mind uh, this often cited work from Elaine Scarry, who's studying uh, the history of pain, the body in pain. Uh, and I believe it's from 1985. And it's something along the lines of pain not only resists language, but actively destroys it. So a major question I grapple with in my work is how do we talk about something that's so personal, so private, so subjective as pain? Mm. And you come to the realization that you can never do it justice because it is such a personal embodied experience. But what I find is that looking at the ways in which pain is described tells us so much about the wider culture in which those descriptions are being proffered. So I'm looking at the history of medicine in late 19th and early 20th century Canada. And we know, historians of medicine know, that these descriptions that are put forward um, under the guise of being stable, objective, scientific facts have so much to tell us about the culture in which they're created. There is that element of pain that is kind of inscrutable or sort of beyond reference or whatever, but, but to some extent, we must also bring certain elements of pain into being by speaking them, right? By sort of like, so I take the figure, for instance, of the, of the fragile, sorry, the delicate woman that I think you, you mentioned in, in, in your abstract. Yeah. That, that's a construct, right? Of language and discourse and perspective. And so there are, that's not, that's still part of pain as a kind of complex, right? So there's sort of, maybe it's, does it make sense to think of pain as many things rather than just one thing? I don't know. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think that is um, the driving force behind so much of the health activism we see today, allowing those who suffer to claim their pain, speak their pain, and have it seen as legitimate in the eyes of the medical profession. For the period I'm looking at, it's really interesting because uh, physicians are really trying to carve out a role for themselves in obstetric practice in particular. Mm -hmm. So they're, in a sense, appropriating and claiming and legitimizing what they see as legitimate experiences of pain for the women they're treating. Mm -hmm. So they're relying on a host of medical technologies and this newly articulated professional expertise to say, in a sense, hey... I could tell you're in pain at this particular moment and here's who we find to be in the most pain and what we're, what we as a, as a profession, as a medical profession are going to do to treat that and legitimize it. It's not so much women saying, Hey, I'm in pain at this particular moment of childbirth, which women historically and continue to report as being kind of the, the transition phase of labor just before the moment of delivery doctors are saying no we can tell you're in the most pain at the moment of delivery itself so that is when we are going to offer anesthesia and i mean race and class of course playing a huge role in in whose pain is seen as legitimate and worthy of medical treatment so you mentioned sort of like an anxiety sort of professional anxiety around obstetrics at this time what, what was that caused by was it just because it was sort of a newish thing or like what, where was that coming from? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a number of factors that are behind that professional anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, first and foremost, doctors, uh, and for the period I'm looking at, we're, we're talking about a predominantly male medical profession well into the 20th century. Doctors are really trying to distinguish themselves and the work that they do in the Canadian context from midwives, who often have a lot more hands-on experience with childbirth. 
as physicians are, are trying to continue to move into obstetrics, it's becoming a more and more prominent place of Canadian medical education. But that education is still very limited. And in the historical record, I'm pulling out lots of stories where male physicians are saying, essentially, hey, here I am at this delivery, particularly in rural settings, and I've never seen a baby be born. I was supposed to do this in medical education, but we, d we didn't really get around to that. As one doctor said, the popular attitude, I think he was talking about the University of Toronto in the 1910s, it counted if you got there in time to hear the baby cry. So doctors were essentially supposed to, in their education, have experience conducting and managing childbirths. Many of them lacked that experience and didn't really know what they were getting into in obstetric practice, particularly if they were general practitioners. So there's a real anxiety of what exactly are we doing here? I was curious about the delicate woman and whether, whether this is still a thing, um, which I'm assuming it is, but in different ways. Do you think medicine still kind of has that as a kind of image of women? When we think about childbirth in, in the 21st century, how we think about it culturally, we really see the, the two separate extremes. Mm. On the one hand, we see kind of the hyper-medicalization of birth and the construction, and here's where we can kind of trace the construction of, of the quote-unquote delicate woman. Mm. So this idea of a certain type of woman being referred to, I, I think some people have used the words as too posh to push. So kind of seeking out an elective scheduled cesarean section uh, based on patient choice. And then on the other extreme, we see... We don't hear so much about the middle, about the range of options and choices that are available to women um, in giving birth, although those choices are, of course, always restricted by uh, structural factors. So we hear about hypermedicalization, the elective cesarean section, and then we hear the other extreme, yeah. unassisted, home birth, free birth. Yeah, so the, the, the cultural rhetoric surrounding childbirth now can't tends to be dominated by those extremes, but there's a huge area in between that we're not really focused on. I'm Sasha Kerbler. I teach in the music department at the Vancouver Island University, and you're listening to CHLY at 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. How important for you is collaboration in your work, interdisciplinarity? Because you're sort of inhabiting what it seems to me is that you're, you're at least between two disciplines, right? Probably more. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very interesting. Being a historian, uh, single authored work is still very much the norm in our field. But coming to VIU, what I found, what I found so great are these opportunities to have conversations um, with scholars working outside of history because all our departments are quite small. It's great to have these conversations and to work with students who aren't essentially history majors, but do have an interest in history, but bring a different disciplinary perspective. So I've only been here a year. I've been fortunate enough to work with two um, undergrad research assistants, one coming from anthropology, one coming from sociology, and they're both bringing um, their own skill sets to, to the work and, and to the research that I do. And I think that's really interesting. And the history of pain in particular is such a multidisciplinary field. And I think um, anthropology 
again, is so important here. So I'm looking at childbirth, the construction of, of nature and what is natural. Historians have quite a bit to say about that, but uh, women's and gender studies, anthropological literature, sociologists, literary studies, it, it is a very interdisciplinary space to have those conversations. It's interesting what you say about VIU too, because I, that's what I've found in my experience. I came here about four years ago and work in English. And it is striking to me how much crossover there is, even even just on a personal level, like with like seeing people from other departments, whereas where I used to be, it was very much not out of any kind of deliberate thing, but like you just kind of, it was a bigger campus. And so you just kind of didn't see people basically. Mm. And so, yeah, like I've worked alongside and, and with people from disciplines I'd never really dealt with before, which I find like obviously stimulating, but, but I don't know, like it sort of makes those divisions seem a little arbitrary too. So yeah, when you're at a larger institution, it can be um, easy to stay in your silo, your disciplinary silo. But when you when you're at a smaller place, it's great to be able to reach outside and make those connections with uh, scholars working in other fields, for sure. That kind of anticipated one of my other questions, which was basically like, what drew you here? Because you've come from a far field. Um, and what do you what do you like? So a what why are you here? And b what do you like about? I guess VIU you've kind of answered that, but maybe living here or living on the island. What what are what are some things that kind of are different for you and maybe that you're enjoying? Well, um, living on the island, I'll, I'll start with that one. It, it really resonates with me so much. I grew up in a small town outside of Thunder Bay in northwestern Ontario and had told myself, okay, I'd like to end up in a small city. Thunder Bay was the big city and it was around 100,000 people. And then as I kind of began my academic career and went went on to graduate school and went on to postdoctoral work, I, I found myself moving from the small city to the bigger city to Waterloo to the bigger city, uh, London, and then Calgary. So it was getting bigger and bigger. I was like, okay, this is great. This has its place, but it would be great to end up somewhere with a bit more breathing room, a, a, a quieter pace, a slower pace of day-to-day -day life. And in terms of coming here, I, I had made kind of the academic rounds, moving for graduate school, moving to the UK for a postdoc, doing another postdoc at the University of Calgary. And it, it's such a tough, tough market, especially in the arts and humanities. So any job would have been great, but this was the job for me. Um, it was a posting for a Canada research chair in the history of women's health. All my work to date has focused on the history of women's health. I consider myself a, a gender historian and a historian of medicine working at the intersection of those fields. So this was the most exciting posting that I had ever seen. And the timing just lined up with kind of coming to the close of that second postdoc and being on the market in a serious way. So I was so excited to apply and interview for it and get it and then start. I mean, it was a long road as well um, between applying and then having to go through the federal application process to get the chair. So when I was actually able to start um, in the summer of 2019, it was the culmination of a lot of work and and very exciting to be able to finally get into that position. People who maybe don't haven't gone through academia or in grad school and job applications don't know how much work goes into that. That's yeah. as well as doing your research, right? As well as researching and writing, like the, those those application processes, they're expensive. You have to like mm -hmm. 
quite often to do it. And I don't know, like it's, it's a lot of work. So congratulations on Oh, thanks. And it's so exciting to kind of have come full circle from a primarily undergrad institution, Lakehead, where because it was a smaller place without a, without a huge graduate program, I was able to work one-on-one with professors and have those research opportunities as an undergrad student, which are, which are pretty rare at larger universities. And then to come back to a place like VIU and be able to work with undergrad students in the same way is, is really rewarding. It is, yeah. And the other thing I, I, I would just say about my experience of VIU is that, because I had, I, you know, I'd come from a big research school, University of Alberta, I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but one, one thing I've been pleasantly surprised by is, so, the, so there's the primary teaching role, obviously, but there's really great research going on here too, and, you know, yours included, but all sorts of, you know, the, the colloquium series is testament to that as well, and all sorts of amazing projects and books and, and so on being produced at, at this primarily teaching school, which is, so it's a really nice combination of those two things, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very impressive and so much interdisciplinary work as you as you touched on earlier as well. Uh, the research office here likes to say that they they bat above their they yeah. bat above their weight. I'm not I'm not too sure about the sports analogy, but there is impressive research being done here and I'm I'm thrilled to be a part of that too. One last question then, um, COVID, how has your year been? Uh, this, we could probably talk for an hour about this, but <laughs> what, so particularly maybe about in terms of your research and teaching, like how, how have things been affected? Is it all bad? Have there been some, some good sort of things that have unexpectedly come out of this whole weird year? Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting. COVID kind of really took hold as we were moving into the spring, which tends to be in history the busiest time for archival research and conference travel so I had quite a few trips plan- uh, planned I planned to go to London to do some research in the Wellcome Library for the History of Medicine um, attend a few conferences over there go to Baltimore for a conference e- everything was cancelled we're looking at rescheduling a lot of a lot of these things for the coming year and I didn't get to do the archival work um, that I had wanted to for 2020 
That being said, when historians go to the archives, especially nowadays where many archives and libraries are allowing digital photography, you tend to collect a lot more material than you have the chance to work through at that particular moment. So the silver lining, I suppose, has been having the time to kind of go through um, these older these older archival troves that I've collected and, and see what's there. And I'm thinking about um, moving my research in new directions, moving beyond the history of pain and childbirth and starting to look at women's pain across the life cycle, doing some new research there with a, a digitized resource, the, the Women's Magazine Archive database that we now have access to at VIU. So working with students to kind of look through historical back issues of Chatelaine and 17 and just have the time that would have normally been devoted to travel, have that time to read and think and hopefully write. I'm teaching this term, the history, the social history of healthcare, which is, I mean, it's a great time to be teaching this course in particular, because when we talk about epidemics and public health and contagion and uh, the other and health, uh, there's so many connections to what we're living through right now. So the, the teaching is really lining up with the research and lining up with the historical moment in a, a, a very interesting way. How, how have the students been enjoying that particular class? Because I'd imagine being able to see immediate connections to what they're living through. That doesn't often happen with, you know, it doesn't always happen with teaching, right? Where often you're trying to make those connections, but it's that would mm. also in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that so many of my colleagues in the history of medicine um, are teaching similar courses this year. And it's great to make those connections and it's great to be able to have those conversations. And I, I encourage it and welcome it wherever possible, albeit in a, in a new form of teaching. Yeah. I, I miss the energy of being in the classroom and having these conversations face to face, of course. But, but there's also... A, a real trauma to what we're living through right now and everybody's affected by it personally in so many different ways so I, I try to walk the line of opening up space to make those connections but not forcing them because you don't really know what everybody's bringing to the class and yeah and, yeah. and imagine sometimes for some students classes are, are maybe a way of getting away from that <laughs> absolutely yeah you know, having a sort of a bit of a respite from, I mean, I found that with my classes where, where I think people, I was, I wasn't expecting people to flock to the zoom sessions we have. Like I, cause I also give le lectures they can just watch by themselves, but people mm -hmm. want to be in zoom almost, I feel for with a sort of community desire to, to just be around people even if virtually. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm finding that too. I, I also give the option of, um, engaging with the lectures and the readings asynchronously or kind of coming together over Zoom to have those chats and have those discussions. And I mean, it's, it's an imperfect form of connection, but it is a point of connection. I think that's valuable in kind of maintaining a sense of, a bit of a sense of normalcy in such an, un, such an abnormal term. Um, Whitney, thank you very much for um, chatting with me. That's really fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to seeing your um, your presentation on, on Zoom uh, this Friday. Uh, and thanks a lot. Okay, thanks Theo. I'm looking forward to it too. Thanks so much.
You've been listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to Whitney Wood for joining me in conversation. Technical production by Robin Davies. Music by Greg Bush. The Colloquium series will be back in November with Sarah Crover from the English Department presenting Behold the wonder of this present age, a famous river now becomes a stage. Pageantry on the frozen Thames. For more information, visit our website by going to ah.viu.ca and clicking Colloquium Series. My name's Theo Finnegan. Thanks for listening.